Just before we uh, get into our message and our study for this morning, I just want to read to you from Luke's Gospel. In Luke chapter 14, verse 16, it says, Then said he unto him, A certain man made a great supper and bade many. And he sent his servant at supper time to say to them that were bidden, Come, for the things are now ready. And they all with one consent began to make excuse. The first said unto him, I have bought a piece of ground and I must need go and see to it. I pray they have me excused. And another said, I have brought five yoke of oxen and I have to go and prove them. I pray thee have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and showed his lord these things. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city. And bring in hither the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. And the servant of the Lord said, It is done as thou hast commanded. And yet there's still room. And the Lord said unto his servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. It's an incredible scripture that reminds us that this great supper is no story, no just little parable or whatever that Jesus gave. It's a statement of the way things are, that this supper has been prepared and there's so many that are making all sorts of excuses as to the reasons why they don't want God, they don't want to come. But the thing that really gets me there is that the master says unto the servants, go and compel them to come in. And as we look at what we're going to go through this morning, you'll see why maybe even with a greater clarity than we've seen before, why we need to compel people to come in. Let's uh, bow our hearts. Father, we just commit this time of study to you. Father, we pray that you open our eyes to the truth in your word. Lord, open our eyes to our own selves. Lord, as your word is as a mirror, reflecting ourselves as we really are. Father, we can't hide anything from you, and Lord, nor do we want to. And so, Father, make us the people you want us to be. Transform us by the renewing of our minds, we pray. Lord, just cleanse our hearts and minds. And, Father, do a work in us that we would live our lives walking by faith in the grace that you provide. Lord, speak to us this morning, we pray. We ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're continuing with our study of the book of Revelation. We've made it as far as chapter 7. Um, we're going to see the, the ceiling of 144,000. We'll see that in a moment and talk about it. And also a great multitude. But if I were to give a kind of a subheading to this study this morning, is Operation Rescue. God is going to intervene and bring out of this time of tribulation that we saw begin last week in our study. There's obviously events yet future. God is going to bring out of this time people for himself. And so we're going to see that as this kind of incredible, in a sense, rescue plan seems to to take place. Now it starts in verse 1 of chapter 7 with, and after these things. Now we need to, of course, just remind ourselves what things we've seen. And in our previous study, looking in chapter 6, we saw six seals were opened. If you remember this scroll that we were focusing on, that we said we believe is the title deed to the earth, and that Jesus was the only one found worthy. This lamb has had been slain. And Jesus takes this scroll out of the right hand of the Father and starts to un- unpick the seals, as it were, and loose the seals. 
And each succeeding seal seems to bring about some sort of event or situation which are then documented. So the first seal as it's opened and we see a white horse which last time we commented uh, seemingly is Antichrist who goes forth bringing a, a covenant or ratifying a, and a peace agreement certainly with Israel. We know that from Daniel chapter 9. And bringing a false peace to the earth. The next horse is a, a red horse and we see war break out in the earth and a quarter of the world die. Anything up to about one and a half billion people are going to be wiped out. We can't begin to imagine what that will be like and how that will affect everyday life on planet Earth. Then we see a a black horse and effectively this black horse is bringing famine and then a pale horse. And really the the key thing that comes there is pestilence. And of course these are really just an elaboration of what Jesus told us in Matthew 24. He spoke about these things coming. He talked about it being the beginning of sorrows. Then the fifth seal is broken. And then we see this image, this picture in heaven of these souls that are under the altar. They've been there, they're slain for their witness. And we commented that they aren't believers, they aren't those that were part of the church that have died through persecution over the ages. Of course God will deal with that. But those believers, those who, who are part of the church, by this time will already have been given their new bodies. Because we get those bodies at the time of the rapture. First Corinthians 15 makes it very clear that this corruption must put on incorruption. It will happen in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. And it will be at that time that Jesus comes bringing those that have already died in Christ and those that are alive and remain. Together we're going to be caught up into the air. We'll receive our new resurrection bodies and then we're told forever we'll be with the Lord. But these individuals seemingly don't yet have they're new bodies. They're t- we're told they are souls. Now, of course, just to make it clear, we are made of those three component parts, body, soul, and spirit. The soul is really who we really are. That's us. The body is the, the container that we're in. And the spirit is that God-conscious part of us, if you like, our conscience. It's the part of us that is, or should be, in tune with God. Now, originally, back in the Garden of Eden, our Spiritual life died. And the world that is walking around not knowing Christ is spiritually dead. For those that are Christians, when we are born again, we are given the Holy Spirit. An incredible privilege that we're told will be with us as the church forever. The last seal that is broken that we saw last time, the sixth seal, then we see this incredible earthquake like nothing we've seen. Everything seems to go black and quite probably as a result of, you know, earthquakes may trigger volcanic activity and ash clouds and all sorts of things. There was a, an earthquake in the Pacific Ocean some years ago now, many years ago, and it was about two years that the ash cloud affected the, the climate and the, the ecosystem. And so you get something like the earthquakes described in, in chapter six. Uh, it's going to have an enormous impact and that seems to be followed by this meteor storm as these big meteorites have come falling to the ground as well. It's going to be a very, very, very terrifying time for those who are on earth. And we read at the end of chapter 6 of those that are hiding in the, the rocks and the caves. It's just, again, um, the prophecy we saw last time we looked in the book of Isaiah. So that's what we've been looking at. After these things, we've not yet seen the seventh seal opened. Just after these things, and now we move into chapter 7 proper. I saw four angels standing on the four corners 
of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. Now, these four angels seem to be standing at the four cardinal points, if you like, the compass points, north, south, east and west. And some have tried to use this verse to criticise and disparage the Bible, saying you know, that it's a suggestion that the Bible is saying here that the, the, world, the world is flat and we've got four corners. Well, that's ridiculous. The Bible's not saying that. Back in Isaiah and Job, we see reference to the fact that the earth is a globe. It's circular. In the Isaiah 40, verse 22, for example, the earth is referred to as the circle of the earth, and the word there implies a globe. So the Bible has never suggested that the earth is flat, and this verse isn't doing it. You know, we speak of those, the north, south, east, and west, as those kind of reference points for us as well. So no, no difference. And we've got an angel standing in each of these locations. Now, we see what is happening here is the holding back of God's wrath. These angels that are there, they're holding the four winds. These winds seem to be about to sweep through the earth, bringing in the next set of judgments that God is going to allow on the earth. And it's interesting because the judgments we've seen up until now have been man-made judgments. You know, it's interesting that so often what God does in judging is simply allow man to get on and do what he wants to do. You know, we, we see that through the war and the, the pestilence and the famines. In a sense, they're not direct intervention from God. That's a result of what man has done. You see, man has always been responsible for so much of the problems we've experienced. You know, the diseases that we struggle with. So many of them are, have been man-made. So many of them have been a result of things that we have done. Of course, people would like to blame God for these things. But there should never be a, a food shortage on earth for anyone. That's a man-made problem. But we're now going to move on to divine judgment as God starts to bring supernatural judgments on the earth. Now, in Revelation chapter 8, verses 7 and 8, you're going to see there that God is going to bring these judgments. This is what seems to be held back at this point, And it's going to be on the earth, the sea, the trees, just as is referred to in this verse here. And those judgments are going to affect a third of all of those things in various ways. And that's going to be the opening of the seventh seal. And it's going to cause the first trumpet, which is the next series of judgments, to sound. So what we're seeing here is this angel saying, hang on a minute, before these judgments come, something has got to happen. And this is what we're going to look at in this study as we go on this morning. Verse 2 carries on and says, And I saw another angel ascending from the east. And by the way, that of course implies that the earth is not flat, because ascending from the east simply is coming over the horizon effectively. Having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea. So again, there's clear reference that they are there getting ready to bring judgment. And he speaks to them and says, saying, hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees until... I'm indebted to Chuck Misler for pointing out those untils. I remember many years ago I was listening to a study and he said, every time you see an until in scripture, mark it because it's important. And uh, I think without exception, uh, whenever you find those untils, they are so important. And he's saying, hurt not the earth, the sea, nor the trees, until we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. It's interesting because we're going to find, when we get to chapter 13, the Antichrist is going to want to use our foreheads to place his mark there. Now seemingly God has already chosen that particular 
place on our bodies to put his name. It's a name that, that God wants to, to, to put there for us. And we'll see later God do that as we get, we are given new names. But here, God is saying he wants to seal those that are his in their foreheads. Uh, obviously a, a way of protecting them. Uh, in a sense, kind of an immunization from the wrath that is about to come. So before that wrath is unleashed on the earth, God is saying, I need to, or I want to protect my servants. And we're going to see those servants explained and, and detailed for us. Now, we've seen this already in scripture before. Back in the book of Ezekiel, and we'll go there in just a second, but before we do, it's interesting to note that the church here are not mentioned. Now we've got this reference to the servants of God, but we're told in a minute who those servants are. Now this is another one of those evidences, if you like, to prove that the church is not on earth during this time. Because if the earth were, if the church were on earth at this point, God would have to also seal them to protect them from the judgments that are about to come. But no, the church at this point are in heaven. They're before the throne as we've already seen in chapter 4 and 5. And into chapter 6, the church is there observing these things from our vantage point of heaven as God starts to bring this wrath upon the earth. As we've said before, the tribulation is God's wrath being poured out on this world. We've already been delivered from God's wrath. We've not been appointed to wrath, Paul tells the church at Thessalonica. But we've been appointed to salvation. Remember the church of Philadelphia. We're given that great promise that they would escape those things that were coming upon the earth from the hour of trial that was to come upon the earth. And Jesus himself in Luke said that church would be able to escape those things that were coming upon the earth. So no, the church is not here at this point. Make it very, very clear. By now, we've already been taken by the Lord to heaven. But let's look back into that prophecy or that that predictive scripture in a sense, looking at what God is going to do. We find so many times in scripture a type, a shadow or a model of something that is yet to come. And in Ezekiel, we read this in chapter 9. He cried also in mine ears with a loud voice saying, cause them that had charge over the city to draw near, even every man with his destroying weapon in his hand. Clearly a time of judgment, a time of war. And behold, six men came from the way of the high gate, which lies towards the north, and every man a slaughter weapon in his hand. And one man among them was clothed with linen and with the writer's inkhorn by his side. And they went in and stood beside the brazen altar. And the glory of God, the God of Israel, was gone up from the cherub whereupon he was to the threshold of the house. And he called to the man clothed with linen, which had the writer's inkhorn by his side, And the Lord said unto him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. And to the others he said in mine hearing, Go you after him through the city and smite. Let not your eyes spare, neither have you pity. So this is a situation in Jerusalem that's going on where those that were looking at the abominations, looking at the way people had turned away from the God of Israel, God was saying those that still cared for God were to have this mark placed upon them. And then as this destroying band were to go through the city, those that had the mark were to be protected. Now that was an event that took place, but it's a shadow of what we're seeing here in Revelation. As God is about to seal his servants 
and protect them from this judgment that is about to come on them. And verse 4 then carries on in Revelation 7. And I heard the number of them which were sealed. And they were sealed 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. So we're given this number, this is kind of very clear and you've short, I'm sure you've heard this many times. Now the Jehovah's Witnesses and also the Worldwide Church of God or Armstrongism both claim that they are, or that they are, some of them are, this 144,000. Now why they choose this is really beyond me, because there's so many other passages in scripture that talk about those that are saved, why they limit this to 144,000. Now particularly the Jehovah's Witnesses tell us that it's only the 144,000 that get to go to heaven. Everybody else has to stay on earth, which will simply be refurbished, is what they say. Now, interestingly, the Jehovah's Witness had a convention some years ago, um, for this 144,000 elect, and some 250,000 turn up. Clearly they have a problem. Um, the other thing you'll see in a minute is this 144,000 have a song to sing. Now if a Jehovah's Witnesses knocks on the door, you could always ask them, are they part of the 144,000? And they'll probably tell you they're not. Ask them if they know somebody that is. And if they do, ask them what the song is. Because the 144,000 have this song to sing. I guarantee you they won't know the song. They won't know anything about it. But it's a, it's a real problem for them when they start to try and take scripture like this and make something of it that's clearly not there. I mean, you really don't want to become a Jehovah's Witness. Their heaven is already oversubscribed. Um, so it's not a, a good line of thinking and reasoning for them. And I, don't, I can't fathom how they can draw these things from scriptures and come to these conclusions other than, of course, being deceived. Now, we're told very clearly who this 144,000 is. We're told of the tribe of Judah were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Reuben were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Gad were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Asher were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Nephilim were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Manasseh were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Simeon were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Levi were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Issachar were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Zebulun were sealed 12,000. The tribe of Joseph was sealed 12,000. The tribe of Benjamin was sealed 12,000. So that makes up our 144,000. Now, it's interesting, and in the study notes which I'll make available, I'm, I'm not sure, I hope you've seen that we've been making study notes available of all these sessions we've been going through. We've got an interesting list here, because we, if you go through in Scripture and you look at the listings of the 12 tribes, they're always different. The reason for that is, if you remember, that Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And Jacob effectively adopted those boys as his own. So sometimes we see these 12 tribes of Israel with Joseph being represented by two tribes, which obviously means we then have 13, but then one of the tribes is always omitted for one or another reason. Now often it's Levi, because Levi became the priestly tribe, so they were sometimes omitted from the lists. But other individuals are, are sometimes omitted, and it's always interesting. One of the fascinating things is to look at the order that we have given here. Because the order of the tribes always seems to spell out something or tell us something that is really quite interesting. The one that's missing from this list, if you didn't notice it, is Dan. Now, it's just an aside, but some commentators think that Antichrist will actually come from the tribe of Dan. There are those that think that the Jews will accept Antichrist because he himself may be a Jew. Now, 
We don't know that that's the case, but there's some suggestions. And one of the reasons is that Jesus spoke of the fact that they didn't receive him, but another will come whom they will receive. And people think, well, therefore that must be a a Jew, and it could be, we'll see. But there's also another interesting allusion is the fact that Antichrist is called the Assyrian. Um, So there's a, a strong suggestion, I mean, we could have an Assyrian Jew, because the Jews were taken captive there. So all of these things may work in together. But we'll see. But it's interesting that Dan was the first tribe to lead the children of Israel into idolatry. Dan, if you remember, it's quite a good lesson we learn in the book of Judges, where they're given this portion of the land. And it's kind of in the middle of Israel, as it were. And and they reject. They say to to Joshua, that's not enough for us. We want more than that. You know, they wanted to have more than they'd been given. They wanted to go outside of the boundaries that God had set. And so they end up with this piece of land at the, right at the top of Israel, a small piece of land. And the, the funny thing is, they don't actually gain much more because it's such a small piece they get. But as a result of this, they end up going into idolatry. And the lesson there is, if you are not prepared to stick within the boundaries that God has set for you, you will end up being led into idolatry in one way or another. God has set boundaries for us in all sorts of ways and all sorts of areas of life. And we need to think, particularly in regard to our affections, the things that we give our heart and mind over to, God has set boundaries. And if we stay within the boundaries that God has set, then we'll be safe and we'll be blessed. But the moment we step outside of those boundaries, you can be sure it will end in idolatry in one way or another. And Dan, typically with the first tribe to bring this kind of idolatry into the nation. And so... One of the suggestions is that Dan is omitted from this list, in a sense partially in judgment as a result of that. But there's more um, comments and notes um, that you'll have in the, the notes that are available if you want to explore that a little bit further. The first thing to, to really comment though as we look at this list again is that God couldn't have made it clearer or easy to understand who 144,000 are. Because we're given the specific details. There are 12,000 from every one of the tribes of Israel, with the exception of Dan. It's really very simple. So how the Jehovah's Witnesses and others can even for a moment suggest that it applies to them is ridiculous. Now, these Jews are sealed by God for a particular work that they will accomplish for him during what seems to be the first half of the tribulation. Just to remind us again, We have this seven-year period of time. The first part is defined by Jesus as the beginning of sorrows, and that's what we've been looking at. And then the last three and a half years, which we've not yet got to, will be the Great Tribulation. That's when God's wrath is poured out without restraint. The church are raptured before all these things begin, and then the second coming will occur at the end, or just after the the Tribulation time itself. So that's the, the period of time that we're looking at. Now, the interesting thing here is that these... Jews that are sealed, that we're not given specifically the reason that they are sealed. Now, there's a number of commentators and scholars that feel that the reason that they're sealed is so that they can go out and evangelize. It's no secret that Jews have learnt, or typically learn a number of languages. And it may well be that these will be used to go out and preach the gospel during this time. One of the things that Jesus said is, speaking of this time, that the gospel of the kingdom will be preached and then the end shall come. And I believe that Jesus refers by saying the end shall come, referring to the great tribulation. This piece here, this really is the the judgment day proper, if you may, if I may put it that way. 
But Jesus spoke about the gospel of the kingdom. Now it's interesting because John the Baptist preached the gospel of the kingdom. That was a gospel that said, repent because the kingdom's at hand. That's not the gospel that we preach. That's not the gospel that Paul preached. Some commentators have given various names, but really Paul preaches the gospel of the grace of God, if you want to give it a title. Because that's what the gospel that we preach is. It's not a repent because the kingdom is at hand. You see, go back, John the Baptist thought that Jesus was about to establish the kingdom and overthrow Rome. Do you remember that John himself sent a couple of his disciples to go to Jesus and said, are are you the one that we're looking for or should we look for another? John was kind of partially confused, imprisoned by this time. John was thinking, hang on, what's going to happen? I thought that I was going to come and prepare and be this herald preparing the way for the one that's going to bring restoration to Israel, restoring the kingdom. Jesus didn't come, though, the first time to establish the kingdom. And even the disciples, if you remember, were confused. Peter, the garden of Gethsemane, what does he do? Pulls out his sword. Why? Because he thought that they were about to enter into battle, that Jesus was going to somehow give them this victory and The reason that the Jewish leaders wanted Jesus arrested and crucified is they thought he was going to lead some sort of insurrection. The concern was, and this is exactly what Caiaphas said, that he thought that he was going to bring this problem that Rome would then bring judgment down upon the nation and take away their liberty and their freedom. As Caiaphas says, that it's better for one man to die than the whole nation. And so... At that time, the gospel of the kingdom was such that they expected the kingdom to be established. And it's even in the book of Acts, after the crucifixion and the resurrection, as Jesus is there with the disciples at the point where he's about to ascend back into heaven. At that point, the disciples say, well, will you at this time restore the kingdom? Now, Jesus, surely now is the time. Kind of, they're starting to piece things together. Okay, so you, you've died, you've paid for our sins. By this point, they've gone through that whole upper room experience that Jesus breathed upon them the Holy Spirit. But they still say, okay, so is it going to be now? And Jesus said, it's not for you to know the times. Jesus doesn't say it's not going to happen. He just says, it's not for you to know. But the Father knows those things. But it's now we're going to get this point in, in Revelation where the gospel of the kingdom is going to be pe- preached again. And it is a repent for the kingdoms at hand. It's the same gospel that, that John the Baptist preached. This whole period in between, we've been preaching a different gospel, a gospel that says that we can believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. It's a wonderful gospel. It's a gospel of grace. And it's such a privilege for us, as we'll see as we carry on in just a moment. So let's carry on. Let's go to verse 9. And after this, I beheld and lo, a great multitude which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and peoples and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes and palms in their hands and cried with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God which sits upon the throne and unto the Lamb. So where did this multitude come from? How did they get saved? Clearly they've come out of this period of tribulation They weren't part of the church, otherwise they'd have been raptured before that. How did they get saved? Well, I suspect that many of them would have been saved because of the witness of you and I, speaking to people now about these things, warning people that these events are going to take place, that there really will be an event such as the rapture. 
And the governments of this world are going to do whatever they can to cover up. It's going to leave the world in turmoil. And I'm sure that that in itself will be a catalyst, if not directly the reason why the world will suddenly seek for a man to rule over them and will be the reason that they start to try and find someone and eventually will appoint Antichrist. Because suddenly you think of millions of believers in all sorts of walks of life and careers and jobs and suddenly disappearing as we're taken home. The governments of the world are going to want to cover that up somewhere or another. You know, presidents of America and other world leaders have consulted with Christians. I know that Billy Graham was asked by a former president in a private conversation about these things. What does the Bible say will happen? You know, the governments of the world are aware of what the Bible says. Of course they choose not to believe it. But when these things happen, there will be all sorts of attempts to cover up. But there's also going to be a lot of people that suddenly go, you know what, what the Christians said was true. They're going to realize that the Bible is true. The Bible is God's word. And I believe also that this 144,000 Jews that are supernaturally sealed and protected will go around the world witnessing and preaching and proclaiming the gospel. We're going to see an angel also proclaiming the gospel. And quite how that will play out and will be seen, I'm not fully sure. We'll see in the text as we get there in a short while. But a number of people during this time will come to know the Lord. We're told, lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds and peoples and tongues, stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God which sits upon the throne and unto the Lamb. Notice that they're clothed with white robes. A very significant point, just to mention that for now. We'll come back to that in a moment. And all the angels stood round about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts. So we've got these three groups that are mentioned here. The angels, the angelic beings. The elders, which as we've said already is representative of the church. And the four beasts, these four living creatures, these four living ones. And fell before the throne on their faces and worship. We've said already, we've spent so much time in heaven on our faces just worshipping God. But it will be so awesome, it will be so wonderful. You know, you think of the, the most incredible time you've ever had in worshipping God. Maybe in a, a service, a church environment, maybe in your home, maybe on your own, maybe just out walking one day. When you've just felt so close to God. Well, it's going to be that multiplied by the fact that we can't even imagine. It's just going to be so, so wonderful. And notice they fall on their faces worship because saying, and this is what we sang earlier, Amen, blessing and glory, wisdom and thanksgiving and honour and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. What a song that will be when we sing it. All the angels around the throne and the elders, the four beasts, fall before the throne on their faces and we sing that wonderful song together. Verse 13 says, And one of the elders answered, saying unto me, what are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? Well, notice straight away, they're distinct and different from the elders. As we've said already, they're not the church. And now the question is put by John to one of the elders, one of the people of the church, representative of, saying, who are they? Where did they come from? John at this point is not aware. And I said unto him, so thou knowest. And he said to me, these are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. 
So straight away we see that this group, these individuals, have come out of this time of tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, there are suggestions or thoughts that they're raptured, they're taken out supernaturally, or that they die, they're martyred. But interestingly, it shows that they were saved in the same way as any other man, any other person, by the blood of the Lamb. There is salvation in no other name. There is no other way to be saved but by the blood of the Lamb. So that's the first thing we should realise. Now I think also they're linked with those that we've already seen back under the altar. Because we saw some there. Clearly those that were there were, were martyred. And they came out of tribulation. They were also given robes to wear. I believe these are another company that have come out. Just as those ones in Revelation chapter 6 under the fifth seal. They were martyred, they came out of tribulation. This other group now we see that are taken out of the, the tribulation time. We're told, therefore, are they before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple? And he that sits on the throne shall dwell among them. I think this is a very interesting thing that we see here. Because notice what we're told these individuals do. They serve him day and night in his temple. That's different to the church. Because the church, the elders get to sit on thrones. We're given a position of authority and responsibility. And I'm not suggesting for a moment that we don't serve God. But these individuals have a very different role. They get to be workers in a sense serving God in his temple and so on as we read. But the church are not said that we do that. We're given this incredible blessing of being the bride of Christ. Now when we get to Revelation 19, we're going to read there. And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude and as the voice of many waters and the voice of mighty thundering saying, Alleluia for the Lord our God Omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honour to him. For the marriage of the Lamb is come and his wife has made herself ready. First of all, we're told that this is a great multitude that are singing. Is it, is it any coincidence that this group are referred to as a great multitude? And then we have another reference to a great multitude. Is it one and the same? May well be so, seemingly. We're told that the marriage of the Lamb is come, his wife has made herself ready. And it was to her granted that she be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And he said unto me, Write, Blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said, These sayings, sorry, these are the true sayings of God. So here it's seen that this great multitude announced the marriage of the Lamb and declare that his wife has made herself ready. As the bride of Christ, as Paul explains in Ephesians 5, was to be washed and cleansed by the washing of water by the word. But the fact that they're declaring, that this multitude are declaring, it means that they are themselves not the bride. I think from what we see, these are those who are the invited guests, those who come to the wedding feast. These are the ones who are blessed to have been invited to the marriage supper, but they themselves are not the bride. They're also given indeed white robes to wear, but they themselves will then serve God through 
eternity. It just underlines for us the privileged position that we have right now of being his, of being saved. And for those who would say, well, I'll, I'll wait and I'll, I'll see if the tribulation begins, if the rapture happens, then I'll believe after that. Well, okay, there may be some that make that decision, but firstly, you should be aware that Paul says there'll be great deception and people will end up believing a lie. There's no guarantee that anybody is not going to be deceived, so you can't assume that you won't be deceived yourself, because it'll be great deception, Paul tells us. But even if you were to take that gamble, and somebody made that choice that, well, I'll wait and see, the best you can hope for is to be a wedding guest. Now, of course, that'll be better than eternity separated from God. What a privilege it is for those that receive Jesus Christ now, trust in him now, put our faith in him as our Lord and Saviour, What a blessing for us. Referring to this group, they shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more, neither shall the light of the sun, neither shall the sunlight on them or any heat. Now again, that's reference to what was going on on earth at this time. It's a contrast from what they had been in to now this privileged position coming before the throne and being able to serve God. For the lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them and shall lead them and to living fountains of water, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. So, unlike the 144,000, this multitude were not sealed. Seemingly, they will experience some of the effects of the tribulation. They'll hunger, they'll thirst. They might be able to. They may well be caught up in the whole atmospheric changes. Clearly, they don't receive the mark of the beast, and that may be a, a reason why many of them will be martyred. I think the tears that it's referencing will be wiped away here will be because of the persecution that they've suffered. And we'll see that in Revelation 13 when we get there, speaking of those that Antichrist will persecute. It seems to be, though, that one of the only ways out of the tribulation will be through being martyred through that time. Just again... What we've already seen, the seven seals. Now we've about to see the seventh seal being opened and that will lead into the trumpet judgments. That will then be followed by the thunders, which interestingly enough, John is told not to record. Now we don't know how horrible those things are or frightening, but for whatever reason, John is told not to record those. And then the final vile judgments that are poured out upon the earth. We see the two witnesses, which we'll look at when we get to as far as chapter 11, We've just been speaking about those 144,000 Jews that seemingly will witness during the first part of this tribulation. We're going to see those later on standing before the throne. They will be taken out. They will also be raptured and taken out of the, the earth. But for this period of time, they're sealed and protected. Then these judgments start to come upon the earth whilst seemingly they're fulfilling the mission and the ministry God has called them to. And I believe, as I've said already, that it's one of evangelism. And as a result of their ministry, this great multitude, these tribulation martyrs, eventually will be taken out. There'll be nobody left, I believe. From about chapter 16 onwards, we start to see a real change. And there'll be nobody left from that point who will be saved for the remainder of the tribulation as God's wrath is poured out in full upon the earth. And we'll Pick it up, we'll look in further detail, we'll move on to chapter 8 in our study next week. Let's bow our hearts. Well, Father, we thank you for these things. Thank you for all that your word reveals. And Lord, the things that are here 
are here for our learning and that we would know, Lord, what is to happen. Lord, you make it clear and you said to John that these things are to show unto your servants things that must shortly come to pass. As the Father, as we start to think through and comprehend these things, help them to not just be bits of information that we acquire, but things, Lord, that affect the way that we live our lives. Lord, realizing that we're walking past people each day of our lives who will be in this tribulation time. People who will not know Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to compel them to come in. Lord, what a privilege it is for those who are saved now. For the those who have come to know you as their Lord and Savior. Who have the privilege of becoming part of the bride of Christ. Oh Lord, indeed it's a privilege even for those tribulation martyrs, for those that get to serve you day and night in the temple, but how much more for those that get to sit on thrones. Lord, we just thank you for these things. Impress them upon our hearts. Lord, speak to us, we pray. And give us each day a greater love for Jesus, we pray. For we ask it in his name. Amen.